Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, this is our first episode back after a couple of months away. I had taken the summer off to move to, drumroll please, Tacoma Park, Maryland! home of our homespun radio station, WOWD. And I am thrilled to be here in the 20912. I don't know if that's a thing that people say around here, but I'm going with it. For those outside the area, Tacoma Park is part of Montgomery County, Maryland, which was recently named as one of the top three most religiously diverse counties in the United States, according to a recent Census of American Religion by the Public Religion Research Institute. So, to explore this subject of America's religious makeup by the numbers, I've invited two religion experts with local roots. Robert P. Jones, CEO and founder of PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute, and Ambreen Khan, host of the religion-focused radio show, Inspired. Together, we go around the country and back home again to discuss the past, present, and possible future of religion in America. So I'm very excited to be joined today by Robert P. Jones, CEO and founder of PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute, and Ambreen Khan, host of the radio show Inspired. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. Yeah, glad to be here. And congratulations to you, Robbie, on your new book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity which recently won a 2021 American Book Award. That must feel really good. Thank you. Yeah, it was, um, I, I had no idea uh, until I until I found out, but uh, yeah, it, it's quite, quite an honor. Um, thank you. Cool. And we'll get into some of the content of the, the book. But first, I want to say that I'm particularly grateful to both of you for joining me on this episode because... I've actually been off uh, for most of the summer as I've been handling a move uh, right here to Tacoma Park, Maryland, which is home of our beloved Tacoma Radio. And I'm very excited to be a resident of our fair city. Um, But I haven't been in front of the mic uh, for a while, so I am feeling a little bit rusty. And I'm glad to have two consummate professionals who can speak so eloquently and at length to topics of religious pluralism. Uh, Robbie, that was code for we talk too much. I just want yeah, to be very right. clear. No, no, right. it's it's that I'm, I'm prepared that I'm just going to fall on my face and forget how to do uh, questions. Do the questions. That's what we call interviewing, doing questions. So. Um, and on top of it, the two of you are locals to the area uh, to boot, um, and I'd hoped that we would be back in the studio but by now, but um, Delta is still being Delta, so for now we're still recording away from our shoebox storefront studio at WOWD, um, but ho- hopefully we can be back there soon, uh, inshallah, as they said back in Hebrew school. So, Robbie, I want to start with you. You're a leading researcher on American religion. Um, but before we get into some of the numbers, I wanted to hear a little bit of your origin story. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about what traditions uh, you grew up with and, and how they inform your interest in studying religion? Yeah, well, I grew up very religious. Um, my uh, Most of my growing up years were spent in Jackson, Mississippi, 
uh, in uh, grew up as in members of uh, Southern Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi, and drunk pretty deeply at that well. I mean, I went to a Baptist college. I went to a Southern Baptist seminary. Uh-huh. Uh, I broke uh, the mold and, and went to a Methodist university, Emory university to do my oh. PhD work. Oh, you strayed, um, but... <laughs> you strayed from the flock. <laughs> I know, but, uh, uh, but, but that's really my, my word and my family, you know, it, it goes way, way back. Um, you know, what I kind of does some genealogical work and, um, at least six generations back and in, in middle Georgia and either one of two counties, both sides of my family, um, no more than just those two counties for about 200 years, wow. uh, going back in the early 1800s, mostly Baptists with a few stray Methodists thrown in for good measure. Wow. So, uh, was there then a formative experience for you that made you decide to say, yes, I'm, I'm not just going to be drinking at the well and, and swimming in these waters, but also study it and 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 found a religious research center or institute uh yeah you know i was pretty immersed in it i mean i was that kid who was at church like five days a week uh-huh. um, you know going to uh, all the way through up through my adolescence um so it it was pretty with me all along but but in uh i went to seminary thinking i was going to be actually clergy and then while i was in the seminary kind of caught the academic bug and thought that was a better fit uh, for um, just kind of my interest and um, kind of where my energy was going. Who reads uh, so, even more than clergy? Academics. Yeah, right, that's right. <laughs> right. Yeah, so so I kind of shifted gears a little bit and uh, you know, did the PhD route instead of the ordination mm-hmm. uh, uh, route. I taught for a few years at Missouri State University in their religious studies department, um, uh, but really wanted to put the work on the ground a little bit more, and that's kind of what made me sort of move from the kind of ivory tower world to the think tank world and what, and actually what brought me uh, to DC about now it's been, gosh, almost 15 years ago. Wow. Cool. So Umbreen, folks who know your show know that you bring a lot of your own uh, personal narrative to informing the stories that you cover. Um, But for those who aren't familiar with your work on Inspired, can you share a, a snapshot of how you came to work in interfaith spaces? Sure. Um, you know, I I was I was born in Pakistan in Karachi, and I came to the United States as a as a little infant. Um, into with in my mom's arms, we landed at O'Hare Airport, mm. and the you know the the short story is that my parents we moved around the Midwest and the American South um, for most of my childhood. I every year and a half we were moving from you know medium-sized town to small town and it's it was a really interesting experience growing up moving a lot taught me a lot Mm. um especially in parts of the country where i was often the only muslim i mean the question about religious upbringing it's it's so it's funny my son was asking me this question the other day and I I grew up in what I would describe as a pretty religious, observant Muslim household. Mm-hmm. And that the journey of kind of moving from community to community also meant that we lost those relationships and those connections mm. um, every time we moved. But at the same time, uh, it instilled in me kind of this comfort level of reintroducing myself to communities that are affiliated or related to the ones I believe in, but Mm. also to people of faith who don't know anything about um, what it means to be Muslim or what Islam's kind of story is. And so 
it was it's interesting. I I grew up in the Midwest and the American South and lived have now looking back have lived the longest stretch here in the DMV in Montgomery County. Yeah. Well, and and we'll we'll talk a little bit about Montgomery County. I think it's interesting to to hear you reflect on that and it makes me wonder for how many people were you the first Muslim that they met or the first Muslim family, you know? You know, it's, um, I wish I could say that I can't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> but you've done a story about but, it. <laughs> I've done a story about it. You've got, and you probably heard it. It's, it's also like, it still happens today, though. Yeah. I mean, I, the truth is, I, I know we're going to get into the survey, which I loved, um, and I love diving into that data. But I think my parents, my dad worked in hospitality, which was one of the reasons mm. we moved around so much. And so both my parents were really invested in the kind of the belief and the outlook um, that you get to know your neighbors, you know, mm -hmm. and and that you assume the best. And if somebody says or does something that might someone else might view as offensive or confusing or, you know, not necessarily welcoming, don't take offense. Just share who you are. Share what it means. And that experience and that, I think, kind of approach really helped me, especially in the Midwest and in, in the South, growing up in those areas where there were very few people who looked like me often. It was just me and my sister, um, mm -hmm. you know, in school who would be not only the only Muslims, but usually the only immigrants. Well, as ever, you uh, remain a master of the segue. So <laughs> uh, continuing this line of thought on this urgency of, of working to understand um, ideas of different religious communities and America's relationship with religion, um, that's really what we're here to, to look at and learn about uh, during this episode. So uh, earlier this summer, Robbie's group, PRRI, the Public Religion Research Initiative, released its 2020 census on American religion, which provides unprecedented county level data on religion, uh, religious identity and diversity in the United States. So this is a really long project. Robbie, tell us a little bit about what went into this work. Yeah, it, it's been really exciting. Um, so this is a seven year multi-million dollar project um, we've been working on since 2013. Wow. Uh, it involved interviews with um, a little over half a million uh, Americans, telephone interviews uh, conducted across those years on landlines and cell phones, wow. um, and then compiling all of this data so that we had enough um, uh, interviews to be able to not just say something about the country, not just something about the states or regions, but about every county um, in the country. Um, this is the first time we've had this kind of data since so the U.S. Census data, uh, uh, you know, we've all been reading stories about uh, the census data, mm -hmm. but they are actually prohibited by law um, uh, for reasons of separation of church and state from collecting any religion data. Um, okay. So you'll, you won't find any religion data in the official census uh, conducted by the U.S. Census Bureau. So that's uh -huh. the reason why we uh, set out to uh, provide this supplementary data um, that you can view alongside the census data. Uh, from the from the Census Bureau uh, uh, to be able to get a, a broader look. So I'm really excited about it. It's it's been a long time uh, coming, and we were you just released it, um, you know, over the summer. So it, you, if your listeners are want to see it, you can Google PRI and Census of American Religion should pop right up uh, for you. It's on our homepage uh, uh, as well. 
amazing. And for, you know, religion nerds and, and other folks alike, it's, uh, you know, what a valuable service uh, to be to undertake that that massive project. So um, when you look at this, when you sit back and you look at this work, then in its totality, what tell us a little bit of some, some of the, the trends that you see, um, things that that may have surprised you about about the data that you collected. Yeah. Well, there's a number of kind of just big picture trends we were tracking as well. I and mean, one of the advantages is we have this big composite data set, but because we're collecting it over time, uh, we also have some trends that we can look at like over the last decade to see how things um, are moving. And just some big picture uh, trends in the country that we see. Um, uh, so the group of kind of white Christian groups in the country um, uh, are, are shrinking. Um, so again, just go back to like as recently as 2008, the country was uh, 54% white and Christian. Uh, today, it's 44% uh, mm. white and Christian. That's if you take all white, you know, so that's white evangelical Protestants, white mainline Protestants, white mm -hmm. Catholics, uh, whites who are Orthodox and, and Christian, non-denominational, all that. But if you identify as white, non-Hispanic, and Christian of any kind, uh -huh. uh, it's about 44% um, uh, of the country. Um, Christians of color are actually growing, uh, though. Um, so, mm. uh, we're talking about like, you know, African-American, Latinx, uh, Asian-American, Pacific Islander, uh, mixed race uh, uh, Christians. That group is actually growing. Um, the group of um, uh, other religions, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, uh, and others uh, are actually remaining kind of stable um, around seven or 8%. And then the other group that's growing is uh, the unaffiliated. Been a lot of news about that. Um, uh, so they're, and they're just under a quarter of, of the population uh, today. Uh, but that group, uh, like for example, back in the 1990s, uh, as recently as then, it was in single digits. So it's quadrupled mm -hmm. uh, just since the turn of the century uh, there. So again, kind of white Christian shrinking, uh, Christians of color expanding, uh, non-Christian religious groups staying about the same, and uh, uh, the religiously unaffiliated kind of exploding um, mm -hmm. over the past couple of decades. So, you know, you mentioned folks who are of a mixed background who may not identify as, as uh, solely white or, or of another uh, ethnic or racial group. Um, obviously, we have uh, a growing number. I can't remember exactly what the data is around, around that percentage of the population, but I think the, the, the forecast for that is that, you know, obviously that's increasing in leaps and bounds of people who identify with, with more than one um, yeah. ethnic group. And I'm curious also how that how that trends uh, with religion and and how you account for some of that in your survey. I know uh, my my fellow interfaith astronaut uh, Susan Katz Miller would would be mad at me if I didn't ask about people who belong to to more than one uh, religious tradition. So how did how did you account yeah. to, for folks that sort of fall either in that in between or claim more than one? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting when we asked about whether. Um, uh, what we did, we don't have the detail in this survey to to say people who identify, for for example, as Jewish and Christian or as Buddhist and Muslim. Um, so we don't have that the exact combinations, but we do have a, a questions that we've asked about whether people consider themselves the followers or practitioners of more than one religion. Mm -hmm. um, and we have about thirteen percent of the country um, who says uh, that they consider themselves. A, the practitioner or follower of more than one wow. uh, re religion, and then you know the the multiracial category is growing. We don't exactly know um, exactly how much it's growing because part of the problem is 
that both at the U.S. Census Bureau and in social science surveys, that the ability to even select that category is relatively new mm -hmm. on survey right. instruments. So we've seen an explosion of it, but part of that has been because uh, that option hasn't even been a box you could check, right? The data previous... collection tools are catching yeah. up to that. Mm -hmm. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Umbreen, as, as somebody who similarly spends a lot of time taking the pulse of Americans about their relationship with religion, uh, what do you see when you think about these trends and, and what do these trends say to you about where our country is is going in the coming decade in regards yeah. to religion? That's a great question. I think, you know, there were, first of all, I, echoing Jack here, thank you, Robbie, and your team for, for putting this data together. It really helps to complement the other data, you know, that's out there about religion, particularly self-reported data sets from groups. Um, this kind of offers another uh, perspective. One of the things that I was struck by was the number of um, white mainline Protestants, like just the stabilizing yeah. of that number. And I'll tell you why, because, um, you know, when I when I came to Washington almost two decades ago, working with religious um, and faith based advocacy groups, and we were primarily at that time concerned about the ext religious extremism, the religious right. We spent a lot of time going and building relationships in white uh, kind of mainline Protestant spaces. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time going to those conferences and just listening, meeting folks. And one thing that was like always on the agenda was declining congregations, declining mm -hmm. numbers, mm -hmm. how to recruit, um, concerns about pastoral leadership. Uh, there was always a debate about whether or not women could enter into the the leadership in a pastoral uh, kind of role, the role that LGBTQ members, whether the congregations were going to be welcoming. Mm -hmm. And so one question or one thing that struck me is that as I've watched those traditions, particularly mainline traditions, evolve over the last two decades and looking at these numbers, I wonder if the willingness of some of those traditions to take on and embrace what I would describe as more inclusive practices and policies mm. in leadership and in attitudes towards populations that have frankly been demonized and excluded um, from, from feeling as if though they have a home there, if that in fact has contributed to the numbers stabilizing and perhaps even growing. And I look at the kind of recent announcement of Nadia Bowles-Weber by the ELCA as a public um, kind of witness pastor in that tradition. As, as in a, the as, Lutheran as, tradition. As in the Lutheran, right, mm -hmm. in the Lutheran tradition, as, a, as an indicator of that is a recognition that this is how we are going to grow. We are going to make the tent bigger. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. You know, as a kid, I grew up in a town that was largely, um, largely Christian. You know, Protestant, a lot of Catholics, uh, Jewish as well, and um, so I grew up in a in a mixed family, but but identified as as Jewish and. You know, and I would talk to my dad about issues facing the Jewish community. And I remember very clearly one time he asked me, um, well, how many, uh, like what percentage of, of America do you think are, are, are Jews? And, and I said, <laughs> well, I know that we're a minority. Like I've gotten that message. I know that that's very clear. 
Um, and I just thought of my town and I, and I said, I don't know, somewhere probably around like 10%. And, and he just, he just laughed at me. He said, yeah, yeah. try to move the decimal point a little bit. Um, and, and he said, well, do you think that in the future, Jewish communities are going to be more religious or ne- or less religious? And, and I said, you know, again, I looked at my friends around me and a lot of them had mixed parents and they didn't really go to Hebrew school so much and so forth. And I thought, well, probably they're going to get less religious overall. And he said, yeah, well, you're thinking about your community that's sort of, you know, uh, you didn't say watered down necessarily, but it's aren't necessarily identifying as, as religious Jews. Whereas he said, if you go, you know, to where your grandmother grew up in, in Brooklyn, you know, all the Jewish folks that are there are having like six and seven kids and they're, and all of them Mm -hmm. are very strongly Jewish. So, you know, something to think about is the religious communities that are actually more Orthodox, that are more conservative. Um, You know, at that time we were, you know, having this discussion about what does it look like for more religious communities to actually be growing because those who identify are getting stronger and stronger um, in those in those numbers, I don't know if that necessarily plays out when it comes to um, what you were talking about, Umbrian, about about you know Christian communities, you know, conservative versus versus progressive. But um, yeah, it just makes me wonder if those if those trends cross over in in that big tent as you're talking about, or folks that are you know sort of sticking to their guns and uh, yeah. and staying more isolated. I, you know, I, I, I'm curious that's, you raise a good point. And it also reminds me about the more, the questions that I have that uh, when I look at this data, you know, even in I, the other surprising thing for me is I was looking at the data about the Muslim community in part, mm. because that's a community that I'm from. And I was struck by how the young, the media, <laughs> the median mm, ages now right. Muslims, yeah. like, I'm like, I've become an elder overnight. Thank you, Robbie, for documenting that. Um, It it was just like, whoa, that's that's such a young age. But at the same time, the vibrancy of that was reflected to me when I looked at the political affiliations of Muslims. Mm -hmm. There are far more... Uh, independent and they are they skew for a variety of reasons more democratic but I remember in the 80s when we went to a uh, a, a Muslim what do you call the Islamic Society of North America gotta get the Mm. acronym right (laughs) the ISNA conference grew up going to ISNA conferences and I remember a presentation about the election and there was the Republican Muslim caucus and the Republican Democratic caucus Mm. and I remember learning that they were evenly split, that at that time, it was a very evenly kind of bipartisan affiliation among Muslims. And it was also uh, heavily represented by African-American Muslims. The data has really shifted. And the racial identity, um, which, Robbie, I'm not sure if, if this survey captures it, but I believe some of the other work that you all have done kind of really digs in and, and shows the diverse, the religious and racial diversity of some of these um, groups, particularly uh, Muslim Americans. Yeah, you know, so it's, it's, it's really uh, notable. I think you're right about that kind of political um, 
uh, yeah, I think vibrancy and, you know, it, it's certainly uh, kind of diverse, um, you know, you look under it. So we don't have um, uh, a, a lot of breakdown in this data, even as big as it is, uh, the, you know, the sample size Muslims are just around 1% mm. of, of the U.S. population. So we don't have a lot that we can break it down. And just for uh, listeners, uh, in our data, uh, the Jewish American population is just under one and a half. Mm -hmm. uh, percent of, of, of the population. Um, but, uh, and, but, you know, actually our, uh, our friendly competitors over at Pew um, have actually done a deep dive on that, on, of, of a two now uh, deep surveys of the Muslim American community. That's probably the best source uh, for the kind of internal diversity of, um, uh, of the Muslim American community. Yeah. Robbie, so uh, connecting some of this to uh, issues that were, were uh, in your book, um, I'm, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about how that can connects to, um, ideas of, uh, you know, whether this, whether Christian fundamentalism or Christian nationalism are in a, in, in a moment that is, is dying out, or is it actually a rising moment right now and, and something that we're going to see sustained, um, in your opinion. Yeah, I do think these things are related, right? So um, so my previous book actually was called The End of White Christian America. Uh, and there I actually started, uh, before we had this much data, I was plotting the early trend lines mm -hmm. of this decline of white Christian groups in the country. Um, so again, you know, we, we've gone from a country that at the beginning of the Obama administration was 54% white and Christian. Today it's 44% uh percent white and christian and and all white christian groups have been in decline there's this one little asterisk that sam Breen noted that uh white mainline protestants have recovered by about three percentage points over the last two years we have two mm -hmm. two data points so that's the one exception but overall there has been this uh decline and notably a decline among white evangelical protestants they've gone from 21 percent of the population down to 14.5 uh, percent mm. of the population and I think that that shrinking um, really has led to, um, you know, really a kind of insecurity, uh, a lot of fears, um, and that has come out um, in very visceral ways uh, in our politics. So when you, you know, so when uh, President Trump arrived on the, uh, former President Trump arrived on the scene with his Make America Great Again uh, mm -hmm. proposal, that last word was really in the in the in his slogan, the again word mm -hmm. was really the one that had all the power. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Pulling, it was pulling again from Reagan. Right. Wasn't that another. Yeah. yeah right. It's morning thing. in America, you know, again, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But it, but it was really about hearkening back to, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, alleged golden age when uh, when they really, you know, when they could use words like the moral majority. And there would be a kind of kernel of truth to that, demographically speaking, right? Mm. Uh, that, that many of their views did represent, and, and demographically they represented a majority uh, of the country. But that's no longer true. And I, this, you know, us passing on this threshold of being a majority white Christian country to one that was no longer majority white Christian country, um, it makes a lot of sense. Of uh, uh, if you're protecting basically a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant vision of America. Right then, an anti-immigrant agenda, uh, right that Trump got behind and ran his entire uh, first campaign on, makes a lot of sense because you're protecting, right, this white Anglo-Saxon Protestant vision uh, of of the country, and you're protecting it demographically, um, you know, and with and projecting this image of, of the country of who's properly American, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that you have to be white and Christian, essentially, to be a proper American in that worldview. And, and so I think that's really what was driving and really what gave it all of its energy. And, and the fact that we were at this um, uh, tipping point um, in the country where people could really feel that, really, could really feel the country changing, um, and that these assumptions could no longer be just kind of uh, continue to be held. I think that gave, um, you know, this this last, you know, four years of the Trump administration uh, explains a lot, right? And and the desperation, the kind of, you know, um, deals that got struck, um, you know, uh, between Trump and white evangelicals, the kind of, I've called it a kind of shotgun marriage mm. uh, between, you know, uh, Trump and, and evangelicals, a kind of desperate gambit to reclaim their past uh, dominance uh, via Trump, I think is really what was driving a lot of what seems from the outside. Um, kind of insane, right? Uh, it's hard to even make, make sense of it. So judging from the the sensational titles to your book, The End of White Christianity, White Too Long, um, the um, if you were to put on your prognosticator's hat, would you then assume that that folks are going to go quietly over the next next 10 years at least or at least the numbers are gonna are gonna not work out in their favor or do you feel like there is gonna be a a push that we're gonna see in the short term where people are buoyed by by that energy you know uh constructive or not yeah no i think we're at a really particularly dangerous time mm-hmm. um you know it, it's very similar to the kind of the analogy of you know a wounded animal that's cornered Right. Um, you know, is, is, is kind of what we're looking at here. And I think that's why, um, you know, all the insanity around, you know, the anti-vaccine uh, thing, anti-immigrant, mm. um, anti-black, uh, anti-critical race theory, like, you know, all of the mm-hmm. kind of flailing around really um, is, is a kind of desperation um, that, that I think it's, just, you know, on the one hand, I think it is, I've called it a kind of death rattle. Uh, mm-hmm. of this group right um uh uh but but you know th- that can be th- they can be quite literally violent uh right. you know and and so i i think we're seeing the danger um of, of that and this sense of this really is the last stand you know kind of mentality um uh to hang on to um that vision of white christian america and i, I think that's the reason why things that have been sort of below the surface are now just right out in front of us and being said out loud, um, right? So at the top of the show, like I said, part of the reason I'm excited to have the both of you, not just because you are exceptionally eloquent and informed guests, um, but because we're now neighbors of a sort here in Montgomery County, uh, where the two of you have lived for some time and where I've just moved. And MoCo has the uh, distinction of being named in the PRRI census of American religion as one of the top three most religiously diverse counties in the country. We have a metric of um, a kind of index of religious diversity by county, um, and Montgomery County is number three um, in the country in terms of highest uh, religious diversity uh, in, in in the country. And it's also uh, in the top ten for highest Jewish population uh, and top ten uh, for highest Muslim. Uh, population oh, well. mm-hmm. um, as well. So yeah, we're living in you know a little microcosm of religious pluralism um, uh, uh, in the in the country. So I want to get your take on that, Umbreen. What have been your personal experiences 
um, when it comes to religious diversity in your neighborhood? How does that affect the quality of life um, and experiences of your family? Yeah. Before I jump into that, I just, I have to kind of, I want to, I want to connect it to something that Robbie just said. Yeah. And, and it relates to Montgomery County. So I moved actually to Montgomery County in 1999, Tacoma Park. Um, So I am a former Tacoma Park resident and then moved essentially not that far from Tacoma Park into Silver Spring. So I live on kind of the Eastern, I guess we all do live on the Eastern part of the County. And over the last, um, you know, nearly 17 years, I have been struck by changes in this county and reactions to those changes in this county. I've been really mm. involved, in addition to my work with interfaith communities and the Interfaith Conference of Metropolitan Washington and the local uh, local Sunday schools and house of worship. I'm I'm also really active in the schools, in mm-hmm. particularly in advocacy as a parent. I I like to say I was a proud PTA president uh, for for two years, nice. and it was in an advocacy at the parent level, at that local level, it gives you an insight, a taste of reactions and changes to attitudes about what Montgomery County's values are, right. and our resistance. And I'll say this. When we were a less diverse county when I first moved here, when we had less diversity in terms of the foreign born versus um, non foreign born, I saw more um, what I would say welcoming uh, tolerance and comfort for supporting programs that really sought to help those who were in need. Mm. And, and, and it's the intersection, not just of religious identity, which we're talking about, but it's also about economics and affluence. And it's about guys race. I mean, it has Montgomery County has become uh, a majority minority County. And my husband grew up here. He, he was born in Schenectady, New York, but his parents are immigrants from India. And mm. so really fun story he likes to tell is when he was in kindergarten in the 1970s, there were three Viveks in his kindergarten class, which mm-hmm. to me is like, wow, that's talk about an amazingly diverse place to live. But he, hearing his reflections always reminds me that, um, that what we have a tendency to kind of look at in numbers in terms of that anxiety and that uh, reaction to a sense of change and a shift in our culture, Robbie, that you were just talking about. I have to say, as I was listening to you, I don't need to read headlines from across the country to feel like I see echoes of it. I Mm. hear it in the discussion boards of the Montgomery County public school system. Mm. I hear it in reaction to a growing vocal opposition to, um, to curriculum incorporating inclusion of histories that have been traditionally and historically excluded. Hmm. So it has been striking. Now, having said all that, I will say I wouldn't live anywhere else. It's been an amazing experience to live here. I loved my journey growing up in Kalamazoo, Michigan and Springfield, Illinois and the suburbs of Memphis. But I will say that living in a neighborhood and in a community where it is affirming, where I don't have to explain what it means to be Muslim, Hmm. where I don't have to feel like 
I have to say, by the way, I'm one Muslim. There are a lot of us. We all have different practices. <laughs> we have different beliefs. Like what you see me doing isn't the template. And by the way, what you see her doing is in the template. Put We're down that beer, all... Umbreen. <laughs> put on the hijab, put down that glass of wine. No, it's, it's, uh, it, that, that we're all very, that we have a lot of different practices and right. that diversity is often obscured. So growing up, I also live in a very multi-faith family. My husband was not raised Muslim. Mm. And so we, his, you know, my, my in-laws are uh, Hindu and my nephew and niece have identify as agnostic and atheist. I mm. have a brother-in-law who is sick. That's all in, Mon in you know, in Montgomery County. And right. the ability to be able to celebrate that and not feel like we stand out is, is something that, I would never trade. And it's been incredibly affirming. And I think as a practicing Muslim, I, I will say this, you know, I, I have more choices in which communities of faith I want to identify with, that mm. I want my kids to be raised in, that I want to create community with. And just like in the Christian or Jewish or Hindu or Buddhist communities, you have different um, interpretations, different attitudes. And when I was growing up, there was one shop. There was just one shop in town. Like you didn't have options. And mm -hmm. here in Montgomery County, in one of the largest you know, Muslim communities, there's six or seven different mosques that I could pick and choose from if I want to go to Friday prayers. Right. And and that's not even including, uh, you know, neighboring D.C. or Virginia. It's right. just it's incredible. And I really value it. I value it. But I put that asterisk that all that diversity doesn't inoculate us from having to, I think, continuously articulate the value of what those relationships and um, what those different perspectives bring to how we intentionally as a community create community. Yeah. Robbie, I want to I want to ask you too, as a longtime resident, um, how have you encountered this uh, this diversity firsthand? Um, have you seen that the 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 things that Umbrina is talking about? Have you seen the uh, government collaborating with religious communities and social service projects, or recognizing or considering uh, religious minorities in school, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, coming from the south, I mean, the the most uh, astonishing thing to me is uh, how spring break is handled in Montgomery County uh, public schools. And it, it's you mean like organized. a minefield. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is. Yeah. It is maybe a weird fight or whatever, but you know, uh, to have uh, Jewish holidays on the school considered on the school calendar, mm -hmm. for example, something and like Muslim, and Muslim holidays, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You. Yeah. 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 And, you know, but coming from Mississippi, I mean, you know, we were calling it Christmas break. You know, um, <laughs> it wasn't winter break. It was Christmas break, um, you know, even the public, uh, even the public schools. So I, I think, you know, that shift is, is just so apparent. And I think in Montgomery County, it is remarkable that just to kind of put a fine point on this, that um, uh, it, it is the top three. The only two counties that are, are, are score higher on the religious diversity index are Queens County, New York. Mm. and Kings County, New York, mm -hmm. right? That's it. And Montgomery County is right there at number three Amazing. Um, yeah. uh, there. And, you know, to your point, though, Amberine, about um, the unaffiliated, uh, you know, Montgomery County actually looks about like the country. It's, it's just over a quarter 
uh, unaffiliated. So it's not off the charts um, unaffiliated, but among young people, uh, though, and you know, and I've, I've got younger kids too. That among young people, uh, the the number today of young people claiming no religious affiliation nationally um, is nearly four in ten, mm-hmm. uh, right? Um, and uh, and among seniors, it's like one in ten. Mm. Uh, so we're seeing just among the generations that are alive today a fourfold increase uh, in the number of people who claim who do not claim. If you compare older to younger Amer- adult Americans. Uh, who claim no religious affiliation, and that's genuinely new. Even if you take baby boomers back into their 20s, they're still only about one in 10 unaffiliated. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that we have a generation that's about four in 10 unaffiliated is really something we've not seen since we've been collecting kind of modern, you know, religious sociological data. Well, and that also really speaks to what I'm hearing from my kids, at least in terms of the conversations they're having and even having to explain things Mm. um, that aren't Muslim specific, but when, like when they tell them what their mom does, like, what, what's that about? (laughs) Yeah, Um, I I, I think about it. They think you're a podcaster. That's what you mean, right? Like not a radio host, but a podcaster. (laughs) I I love this phrase from Max Weber, um, you know, the German sociologist. He, He talked about people who, um, uh, were not religiously musical, which I think is a great oh. way of putting it, right? Which is kind of what you're describing, Amberine, right? Just not familiar with ritual right. um, or commandments or, right. you know, those, you know, laws, like and, religious and law. Yeah. Greatest hits. It's the, it's the language. It's the, I did an interview with Jonathan Merritt, who I'm sure both of you yep. um, mm-hmm. know. And he did, he wrote a book about this and the, it was one of the first interviews I did for uh, Interfaith Voices. And it was fascinating because he was up in New York City and he's talking about how even saying, you know, expressions that were so part of his daily life, he had to actually explain them. And, I, I know in my own house that, um, you know, phrases and references, particularly to biblical stories, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. not something that everyone in my family gets. Like there'll be double meanings. And I think the political implications for that is something that, you know, we, I think need really attentive reporting, really attentive analyzing because there are a lot of signals that are communicated to audiences in the rhetoric that political leaders will use. And I found, especially during the most recent administration, and even in in the inauguration, uh, during the inauguration speech of um, President Biden, it was, I went to Catholic school for three years. So I felt like I was just hearing things (laughs) over and over again that I recognized. Mm -hmm. And I remember turning to a neighbor who was joining us and they just were like, "Uh, that's really poetic. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's rooted in his social justice teachings from Catholicism. And I, and so I wonder when you look at that data, Robbie, and you see, especially the affiliations and the identities for political parties that are trying to reach at a national level and create a sense of community, create a sense of connection, how our rhetoric, how our language does that when you've got a large percentage of the population and, and soon to be kind of you know, voting decision makers in our country don't necessarily operate from the same musical pages. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, and it, it, it unfortunately looks like um, this may be part of this, our story of our continued partisan polarization because the two political parties face very different questions on this point. Um, you know, one of the things that we showed in this report is that 
um, the Republican Party, despite the diversification of the country, is still relatively homogeneous in terms of race and religion. Um, they're more than two-thirds white and Christian. Uh, self-identified Republicans are. Uh, self-identified Democrats are only about one-third white and Christian and like everyone else, um, mm. you know. And so if you're a Democratic politician and you're you're using rhetoric to um, and, and the thing about religious rhetoric is, is you're right, it, it's pregnant with meaning, right? And there are layers to it. When you use something, it alludes to a whole other worldview. Um, and, you know, the ability to use that language, I mean, it, it's what makes rhetoric powerful in many cases. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can't read Lincoln's second inaugural uh, if, if, you, if you're not aware of all the biblical allusions he's making. Mm. It, it falls rather flat. Uh, right. But but if you can if you hear all those resonances, it, it's quite a different speech. Uh, so I, I think it does present a real challenge. And and, it, and unfortunately, I think it may end up having us hear uh, Republican candidates uh, using more narrow appeals. Right. We've even seen this like, explicitly praying in the name of Jesus, for example, at a political rally. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, uh, instead of a more civic religion. Uh, appeal. Um, and then on the Democratic side, um, you know, a real challenge there because it is, it's it's Jewish and Muslim and Sikh and uh, unaffiliated. And, you right. know, it, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a much more diverse stew and, and trying to figure out what the right sort of language to weave together some kind of unified identity or something that echoes more deeply across the group. Um, it, it's a real, it's a real challenge. I'll share my my proud moment recently of religious illiteracy in our household. So we've been watching a lot of movies during the pandemic, uh, many more movies, catching my daughter up on on all the pop culture and everything that she was just on the cusp of being ready for. So we watched um, Raiders of the Lost Ark um, uh, a few months back. And previously to that, we had read some um, illustrated uh, Bible stories for children um, going going through the the Old Testament, and we got to a scene where Indiana Jones is um, meeting with I think the, the members of the FBI or the CIA or something, and he's about to go out, out on the mission, and he's explaining why the Ark of the Covenant is so important and why the Nazis are 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 obsessed with this. And my daughter turns to me and she goes, "Oh yeah, the, I get it. The Ark of the Covenant, like." that the Israelites were carrying through the desert and they kept the 10 commandments in it. And I was just <laughs> sitting there going, wow, that kid picked it up. All right. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> very, very proud of that little, a little religion nerd in the making there. So you've done a better job than me, Jack. I will say that right now. <laughs> she hasn't quite picked up all the Quranic references yet. Mm. We still have to work on, on that. You've got time. You've got time. A little bit of time. Um, but I, I do want to. I want to hold. A, I know we're we're going a little bit long here. I do want to hold a little bit of of time as we do each episode um, for my guests uh, to to ask each other some questions. We jumped into that a little bit. Um, this episode, obviously, we have two professional question askers, so I'm not surprised by that. Um, but I wanted to see if um, you know, as we're sharing these reflections, reflections both on on the data and the big picture of the country, and also our personal experience. Um, Ambreen, you already asked Robbie a little, a little bit of questions. Robbie, do you have any questions for Ambreen? You know, I want to ask about, um, you know, we're, we're just uh, a little bit away from the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Uh, 
Um, it's going to be something the country's talking about a lot. Um, I, I'd love to hear, Amberina, like, you know, there was just such, uh, uh, you know, an eruption of anti-Islamic, you know, uh, sentiment uh, right after 9-11 that came out of complete ignorance, you know, in, in most among most Americans. Um, what's your sense of things, uh, you know, now, 10 years uh, 10 years later. Um, uh, 20 years, 20 years. Oh, 20 later. years. Sorry. Yes. 20 years. Later. <laughs> lost that um, decade. Lost, lost the decade. Yeah. <laughs> 20 years later. You know, I think, you know, it's interesting. I've been thinking and reflecting a lot on this. Um, my, my oldest was just a year old at the time, a little under a year actually. And I, uh, I was, I was taking what I would describe as a, as a mommy sabbatical. And mm. at the time, I was doing interfaith advocacy work really around LGBTQ issues and uh, reproductive freedom. And I stepped away from that work and then felt and at that time, Robbie, I was feeling like, you know, all this all this work that I did as a, as a, as a young person, uh, as an activist around attending interfaith meetings and sitting around the table and doing the religion 101 and getting to know, you know, uh, each other. I was dismissing it at like 20 mm. years ago. I started to view that kind of what I would call interfaith 101 relationship building as like two kumbaya like that wasn't mm. like that didn't draw me in anymore like i we don't need that who needs that i was looking down on it i mean i i was thinking about this the other day that after after 9-11 i found myself um all of a sudden being called and also feeling a sense of urgency and and that mom sabbatical that i was taking ended uh, abruptly and started mm. working with with and found myself to be this really in, in an interesting position because i had relationships within the muslim community that at that time was not interested in interfaith advocacy the way it is today that at the time was resistant and suspect of interfaith tables didn't see the value in it in the same way. And I can say that, you know, that I have too many stories to share about that. And then after 9-11 to see the shift and to see the value of that work in building those relationships that became so important to building and creating kind of allies and places where, where communities could get to know and try to answer questions. I think that the demographic changes and the way in which the country has evolved over the last 20 years, if you'd asked me at the 10th anniversary of 9-11, how I was feeling, I remember that. I don't remember celebrating it. I don't remember spending a lot of time on it. It was in the midst of the Obama administration, and it felt like, okay, we went through this really difficult time. Mm. I had this really amazing story to tell about how this country, we moved forward, mm. that rise and the, the clip of Islamophobia and anti-Muslim hate crimes that were being reported and not reported felt like that was, that was actually being countered and it was reduced and that there was a greater awareness about who our Muslim neighbors were. This time around, now 10 years later from that point, after 
uh, four years of the Trump administration, and it's not just about one person, four years of a, a steady political amplification of demonizing Muslims as a threat, as a threat not simply to communities and national security, but the idea of liberal Western democracy. It is impossible to separate the feeling now as I'm watching uh, what is unfolding in Afghanistan and the resurgence of the Taliban uh, in, in that country, how the rhetoric and even the fears that are are coming to me. I'm getting text messages and messages now about, you know, securitizing houses of worship and mm. preparing for a potential backlash because of extrajudicial mm. um, hate crimes, yeah. uh, especially targeting sick Americans who are attacked um, regularly because they're perceived, as, as you know, to be Muslim. I, I just, I'm feeling... I don't like the term death rattled, but I'm not sleeping as easy as I used to. I'm mm. not sleeping as easy as I did 10 years ago. I am an incredibly optimistic person. If you're friends with me on Facebook, you know, I, it's kind of like my mantra. It's like, I try to find the good in everybody. Uh, when someone cuts me off in traffic, I'm like, they must be having a bad day. Like that's my <laughs> kind of outlook, right? I like to look at the world that way. It drives my husband crazy. Uh, but I don't want to, I don't want to be disingenuous. I don't want to not be authentic. When you ask me that question, I'm worried. I'm mm -hmm. worried in a way that I haven't been worried before. I think what it means to be an American, what are the national values that we hold? How does, how do we across all our various divides find a way to see each other's humanity has never felt more important right now to me. Mm -hmm. And all that, I look back at my 20 something self who dismissed interfaith work as kumbaya and I'm shaking my head at her going, little did you know, those relationships, that's the foundation. Yeah. That's the foundation. I, th I think that's a, that's a really insightful observation about it an insightful reflection on it. You know, one of the things that I've thought about looking back at, I would say, you know, again, just thinking about the last 10 years, um, and particularly when it comes to, as we were talking about earlier about younger people and how they engage with religion, the thought that I've had in some of the interfaith circles that I uh, work with, with folks that are, um, that came up basically after 9-11, that came up mm -hmm. with, with um, you know, or, and now we are, hurtling very quickly towards our 40s, you know, God forbid. Um, and the um, the feeling is that when when I started getting into this, it was there were only relatively few spaces that were specifically interfaith that we worked that we were working in you mentioned one of them umbering the interfaith conference of metropolitan washington right like big banner this is where interfaith things happen mm -hmm. and as i look at whether it's the climate movement or black lives matter or so many different um movements and organizations that have have grown or adapted to the present moment that we're in that an interreligious component to it feels 
matter of fact, that it feels like everybody is saying, I mean, at least obviously in, in more progressive circles or whatever, but maybe not exclusively, you know, this is a this is an element to our civic life that we have to at least acknowledge and make space for. Now, it may be clumsy and, and ham-fisted in terms of how it is that people operate um, and, and, the, and the way that they actually create those spaces, but um, I find somewhat heartened that that it isn't in a box in and of itself. It's an element to the work that that needs to be done in the same way that, or maybe not the same way, but in in a similar way to there needs to be, you know, an, an acknowledgement of a spectrum of of gender and of of racial identity. You know, that religious identity is is a is a part of those spaces as well. And it makes me wonder, it's interesting to think about in terms of the um, the, you know, the four in 10 that you were saying, Robbie, of younger folks that don't identify as religious and yet are growing up in a more hopefully religiously pluralistic, definitely diverse, but hopefully pluralistic society. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in faith-based issue advocacy. And so I agree with you. And I feel like it, by virtue of a lot of the conversations I've had over the last couple of years, I see this coexistence between the interreligious voices that are advocating from a place of sh and finding and articulating their shared values in partnership or in alignment with secular advocates. And right. I see that in a way that is much more fluid. And I think you're absolutely right. Almost expected. I don't see a resistance to it. Um, but here's the thing that I just kind of don't know that I know or am confident in the answer. Just because you coexist, just because you have folks next to you, doesn't mean uh, that you see each other, doesn't mm. mean that you are willing to stand up for each other, doesn't mean you're willing to share with the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, I'll just follow on that. I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot that sort of ties kind of where white Christians, you know, who have been used to being the ones in charge, right, mm -hmm. of, uh, of many of these efforts. And, you know, I think one of the things that's, that's shifting and, and one of the things that, you know, we're seeing white Christian groups in particular have difficulty in shifting is giving up the ownership of the table, right? So if we think mm -hmm. about, you know, the, uh, I think, uh, uh, like, I, I've got this antique dining room table in my dining room that has six chairs around it. Um, and one of the chairs is bigger than the others and has arms on it, right? It's uh -huh. called the captain, the captain's chair, uh -huh. right? And it was made for the patriarch of the family to sit at the end of the table and preside over dinner. I mean, it's a very patriarchal, hierarchical view of the family. Um, but it was built into our furniture, right? Um, it mm. was such a, a, a kind of a widely shared um, a, a, a kind of trope or value at the time. Um, and I, I feel like in many ways, you know, part of, I guess, you know, what the book is about, uh, white, white Too Long is about is trying to get white Christians to decenter themselves, right, from the story and realize that this is a shared story. It's not one owned by white Christians where other people are guests. And if we're kind of using the table metaphor, you know, it's not a table that white Christians own and they're sitting at that captain's chair and they're inviting graciously inviting other people, you know, to come and take a chair as guests at their table. Um, but, but that no, no, the, the, the story of this country, right. And, and sort of the future of this country is one where nobody owns the table and we all pull up 
chairs together, right? To um, to kind of share a meal uh, together on equal terms. But but I think letting go of that you know privileged place, that place of power uh, and control, I I think is part of the you know part of the challenge we're living through um, right now. Well, I'll I'll overlook the fact uh, that you you grabbed the close of the conversation uh, because you had such a brilliant metaphor for it. So. <laughs> 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 well, guys, this has been this has been so wonderful. I really appreciate um, uh, both of you jumping on and being part of this conversation. Um, I'm really glad that we could have uh, a wide ranging uh, discussion of, of of the national view of things, but also bring it back home right here to Montgomery County. Uh, this has been great, and um, I I want to uh, just invite people to uh, learn more about PRI's work. Robbie, can you share how, how folks can learn more about uh, the Census on American Religion? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, PRI is at prri.org. The Census of American Religion is right there um, on the homepage. And if you want more about the, uh, the book, um, I'm actually I've recently launched a Substack newsletter on White Too Long. It's at robertpjones.substack.com. So welcome, everybody. Come join the conversation there. Awesome. And congrats again on your 2021 American Book Award. Thank you. Great. And Ambreen, where can folks listen to Inspired? Sure. Um, well, it's you. It's also a podcast and a radio show. So you can uh, you can head over to interfaithradio.org where we have our archives that go all the way back, I think, to 2008. And you can subscribe to the podcast. There is an entire list of stations where you can tune in and listen. Um, and we also have a newsletter and uh, would welcome you to similarly sign up and you will get every week delivered into your inbox uh, a link to this week's show. Awesome. So excited that Montgomery County is not only uh, big enough to have a diversity of uh, <laughs> religions and religious communities, but also uh, a multiplicity of interfaith related radio shows and podcasts. I knew you were going there. <laughs> <laughs> and that, my friend, sounds like a great wrap. <laughs> all right. Thank you all so much. Thank Thanks you. Talk to you again right. soon. Take care. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests, Ambreen Khan, host of the religion-focused radio show Inspired, and Robert P. Jones, CEO and founder of PRI, the Public Religion Research Institute. As always, I want to give a shout-out to my fellow Interfaith-ishtronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, both relatively close neighbors of mine, very excited for that, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher, a native son of Maryland himself. And thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of Interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find podcasts. We are a big tent podcast. We welcome all, we take you as you are, and we pass no judgment on the path that led you here. We're on social media at Interfaith-ish, so keep writing us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org. <laughs> <laughs>